This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. It's found on page 260 in the Bibles in your rows if you'd like to follow along as I read. Second Samuel 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Emil at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emil at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, New City. Morning. My name is Ryan Dang. I'm one of the pastors here. We've been going through the life of David in this last few weeks, and today we come to one of the lesser-known stories of David. It's a very sweet story, but I have to say that, um, to be honest, has been a very hard sermon to write, literally, because the name of Phibosheth is very not very natural for my fingers to type. So at some point, I started putting the word "am." And I just kept thinking of James Bond. So, Anyhow, we, before we get into Mephibosheth, I want to share a story about a friend who is a violinist, a professional violinist at the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra, and who also, his family happened to be part of New City. His name is Charles. I hope, I think many of you may know Charles. This is what it says on Charles' bio on the symphony's website, okay? The question, where is the strangest place you've ever practiced? And he answered, 
Playing violin on the roof of my childhood house is actually one of the reasons I'm in music. When I was about 13 years old, I figured out how to climb up without a ladder. So naturally, I decided to be fiddler on the roof, straddling the peak of our house. It so happened that someone driving by at that very instant saw me, mentioned my name to a politician who had connection with a state educational initiative that was able to sponsor me attending my first summer music festival, which was my first glimpse into the national international music scene. That transformative experience would not have happened if I hadn't been the daredevil I was at that time. I think that was just amazing. And it shows that he had the courage, the courage to climb up to the roof of his house. He had the skills, the skills to impress whoever is walking by, and and he showed up at the right place at the right time. And with that right skill, put him on the trajectory to be a professional musician. And typically, that's how the world works, right? You know, you you have something to show. You are accepted. You are hired. You're celebrated. You've proven your value to the world. But being the daredevil that he was, Charles proved that he could be valuable in the musical world. So, what do you have to show for your life? Now, we have a community of very talented and educated people here in New City. Now, if you, if tomorrow you get called into the White House, and the president says to you, "Impress me," I think all of you would have something to impress, something impressive to show. But what if at the end of your life, you call into God's presence and God says, "Impress me"? What do you have to show? How do you prove your worth to God? And what hope do you have when you feel like you have nothing to show? But here in the story, we see a man who was who has absolutely nothing to show, yet he was accepted by the king. So why is Mephibosheth accepted, and the answer to that question may give you some hope when you feel like you have nothing to show. Okay. Well, first, who is Mephibosheth? Everybody say Mephibosheth. Okay. So David, at this point, is king, and he's looking for a descendant of Saul and Jonathan, so that he could show kindness to him. And there's a man named Ziba, who is formerly a servant of Saul. And he says to David, "There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet." So Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, grandson of King Saul. And earlier in Second Samuel chapter four, we learn that he was five years old when Saul and Jonathan both died in battle. So overnight, he became an orphan. And then when his nurse was, when his nurse took him up and fled, he fell and became lame in both feet. It's a tragic childhood. But he's someone ordinarily unworthy of the king's attention. But suddenly the king calls for him. David says, "Find him, bring him here." And when he approaches the king, his action shows that he is more than just embarrassed. Verse six says, "Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage." That means he prostrated himself to the ground in front of David. David calls him Mephibosheth, and he answered, "Behold, I am your servant." And later on, he refers to himself as a dead dog. Now, notice these 
are the same words that David used to describe himself when he was hunted by Saul. Now, David was trying to tell Saul, "Don't kill me. I'm a dead dog because I'm, I'm worthless." Now Saul's grandson is calling himself a dead dog in front of David. Now, in the words of Michael Scott, "Well, well, well, how to turn tables." Mephibosheth was terrified. Why is he so terrified? Because it's not just an ordinary orphan. He's the grandson of Saul. Personally, Saul was David's mortal enemy. But this goes beyond personal animosity. Politically, he's a threat to David as well. He has royal lineage from the previous dynasty. If you look at history, most dynasties end not just because the king is dead, but because the king's family is also wiped out. Because as long as there's one remnant left, he would have legitimate claim on the throne. And Mephibosheth's uncle, Ishbosheth, did just that. He claimed Saul's throne until he was murdered by his own guards. If you flip through First and Second Kings, what do kings do when they take over the throne in Israel? They clean house. It's a normal practice. It's politically necessary. So when I was working on this sermon last week, I went on a rapid trial and、um, I looked up this old movie named "The Last Emperor." It won Best Picture in 1987. You may have seen it. It's, it's about the last emperor of China. He inherited the throne when he was two, and four years later he was forced to abdicate. And then he was set up as a puppet king by the Japanese, by the Japanese in Manchuria. Later on, he was imprisoned by the communists for ten years. And finally, he ended up as a gardener and a ticket salesman in Beijing's botanical garden. It's a true story, probably one of the most fascinating lives in the last century. But the more fascinating thing is, he was allowed to live at all. Because just by his birth and lineage, he was an enemy to the state. Just by his birth and lineage, Mephibosheth is an enemy of the state. So then, on the other side, we have David. Now, who is David? David's king, Israel. He's riding high on his recent success. He has established Jerusalem as the new capital. He's defeated all his rounding enemies. And God has made a covenant to build up His house, but it took David a long time to get there. And things would not would go south pretty quickly. But before he was king, he was he suffered a lot under Saul, because Saul hunted him down like a dog. And after Saul and Jonathan died, David had to fight for the throne with Ishbosheth, Saul's son. And a few chapters after this story, David's own son would rebel against him. And some people from Saul's tribe would cheer David's downfall. Ziba would spread the rumor that even Mephibosheth himself is cheering for David's downfall when Absalom rebelled. So David's here, looking at the grandson of his former enemy, the remnant of the previous dynasty. He has the power to show incredible kindness to him, but he also has the license to kill. Next, we will see that David's not afraid to kill someone for his own personal gain. So, kill 
or kind, what would the king do? Of course, we know that David wanted to show kindness to Mephibosheth. Therefore, the first thing he says to him is, do not fear. Which is the same thing the angels said to Zechariah and Mary and all the shepherds. In Jesus' narrative, birth narrative, do not fear. You're not going to die today. I'm going to give you great news. That David chose to show kindness to Mephibosheth. And he did it for a very specific reason. Now, before we get there, let me talk about some other reasons that David could have given. Okay? David could have said, I'm showing kindness to Mephibosheth because I pity him. And look at him, he's my friend Jonathan's son. He's an orphan, he's lame at both feet, he needs love. Well, David could have said, I'm showing kindness to Mephibosheth because I value him. And having his loyalty would unify the kingdom. It would show people that I'm a good king, David the Merciful. Or David could have said, I'm showing kindness to Mephibosheth because I'm good. I would not repay Saul's evil with evil. I would choose to love my enemy because God has called me to be a different kind of king. Those are all good reasons. And they may even have flashed through David's mind in those moments. But that's not the reason David gave here. Those reasons would be based on his own feelings, his own needs, and his own principles. But the only reason David gave here is almost entirely outside of himself. And before I talk about that, let me ask you a question. Why should God show you any kindness at all? Why should God show you any kindness at all? Because essentially we fall back in the same three reasons. One, God will be kind to me because he pities me. I'm weak and lowly. He will love me. Or, two, God will be kind to me because he values me. I'm gifted and talented. Look at all the great things I've done for his church. For the world, I've been so faithful, I bring him glory. And third, God will be kind to me because he is good. God is loving and kind. He has to love me out of principle. Otherwise, he's not a good God at all. Now, those are the three reasons you fall back on. Then you have totally misjudged the nature of your relationship with God. See, we stand before God just like Mephibosheth stands before David. We are his enemies. The book of Romans says we have all fallen short of God's glory. David's own psalm, Psalm 14, says they've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. David says in Psalm 51, "I, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And we're all born into evil, into sin. And just like Mephibosheth, our birth and lineage show that we are naturally enemies of God. But unlike Mephibosheth, we still actively rebelled against God. We rebelled against Him when we deny God's authority over us. We rebel against Him when we violate His laws. Rebelled against him 
we fail to love him and love our neighbors. And the little goodness that we have all comes from him. Because we're all made in his image. But we have used his blessings to serve ourselves, not him. Now, why should God show kindness to us? No pity. We're his enemies. The worse off we are, the better, because enemies deserve to be punished. No value. What value can we bring to God? No, God has everything. He created everything. And what can we do that could actually benefit God? The prophet Isaiah says all of our good deeds are like filthy rags. We are only able to do good because of him. Now, why should God value us? And principles. And that's the most common refrain we hear, right? Now, God is love. Love is love. God has to be kind to us because he's, he's loving. Well, yes, God is loving. But are we lovable? I mean, how often do you ask yourself, am I good enough? If you ask yourself that question with other people at work, at home, or on a date, why would you suddenly think that you're good enough when it comes to God? Just because God has to love you out of principle? Here's another one of God's principles. He's just. And we deserve condemnation way more than kindness. So there's only one reason why God should show kindness toward us. And it's because God looks at us the same way David looks at Mephibosheth. God shows kindness toward us for someone else's sake. You know, back to David's story. What is the reason David gave? Verse 1 of the chapter. Is there still anyone left the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? The word kindness recurred a couple more times in the story, and it's not just some general good feeling. It's the word kesset. It's the Old Testament word that uniquely describes God's steadfast love. It's the faithfulness, the sacrificial love God shows toward his people. And David even says in verse 3, that I may show the kesset of God to him. And this steadfast love, the faithfulness that David tends to, intends to show Mephibosheth is entirely bound to three other words. For Jonathan's sake. It has nothing to do with Mephibosheth himself. It's all because of Jonathan. It's because Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, Saul's own son, the next in line for the throne, sacrificed his own claim to the throne to love David. And David now looks kindly on Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. Because Jonathan's sacrificial love toward David, David made a covenant with Jonathan back in 1 Samuel. And that's what Jonathan says in 1 Samuel 20. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Now David shows sacrificial love, faithful, steadfast love toward Mephibosheth, all because of Jonathan. Jonathan loved David, and David loved Jonathan. 
David did it all for Jonathan's sake. And when God looks at you, he will show you a greater kindness than David showed Mephibosheth, all for the sake of Jesus. Because he made a greater sacrifice than what Jonathan sacrificed for David. Jonathan gave up his claim to the throne for his friend, but Jesus left his throne in heaven and died for you, his enemy. Because God loved Jesus, he also loves you. It has nothing to do with what you have to show. It's all for Jesus' sake. You are saved. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's for Jesus' sake, God will have pity on you. God will be proud of you. God will love you. So back to the question earlier. Why should God show kindness to you? It has nothing to do with how pitiful you are or how talented you are. Now, the, Scot- the, the Scot- Scottish preacher, Alastair Bank, said in a sermon, if you, answer that, if you answer that or I answer that question in the first person, we have immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believe, because I have faith, because I am this. The only proper answer is in the third person. Because of he. Because he. All the ugliness and guilt and failures went to him on the cross. And his righteousness and loveliness came to us. So when God looks at us, he thinks of Jesus. With his wounds, we are healed. What the hymn says, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. What does that mean for your life today? But David didn't just let Mephibosheth live. David took him into his family. Says Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name is Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. For Jonathan's sake, David restores Mephibosheth's wealth and treated him as one of his sons. For Christ's sake, God has adopted us into his family. And it's a relationship that we cannot lose because it's entirely outside of us. Think of all your relationships right now. I mean, I dare say that all of your relationships have a, perform- a performance components to them, right? Think of your performance review with your boss, your husband coming home after you've been with the kids all day, your parents seeing your report cards, your date responding to your next invite. Whatever it is, there's an underlying fear of not measuring up and losing the happiness you have in that relationship. No. And of course, Jesus said, sometimes we will even be hated for his sake. Now, even in your most committed relationships, where there's no chance the other person will leave you, there's still some possibility that he could be upset at you. Have I been good enough? That's why it's so sweet to hear people say, good job. I love you. 
I do. The more important that relationship, the more powerful those affirmations are. It means more to hear that from your father than from your teacher. It means more to hear that from your spouse than a friend. It means more to hear that from Pastor Josh than Pastor Ryan. Now, these affirmations gave rest to our souls. To know that we are loved and in the bedrock of all our relationships, your relationship with God, God says to you, I love you. Good job. You're good enough. Not because of anything you have have to show, but because of Jesus. You You can't lose the affirmation. You can't screw it up because it's not on you. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And this affects your relationship here with other people as well. Look around you. Look at the people sitting next to you. You can probably smell them right now. They were probably singing out of tune earlier. Why Why should you be kind to them? Now, why should they be kind to you? Now, if someone that you know, I'm sure they've done something to annoy you. If someone that you don't know, then they're just strangers. Now, why should you be kind to them? If you love them just because they share the same things, they believe in the same thing you do, or they dress like you, or they like the same thing that you do, then your love is conditional. But if you love them for the sake of Jesus, because Jesus died for them just like he died for you, then it creates a bond that you cannot break. That's why Jesus says, love one another so that the world may know that you are my disciples. Because you love them not for who they are, but for the sake of Jesus. Can we try to do that here in New City? Now lastly, let me talk about how we pray. Now, why do Christians always pray in Christ's name? Many other people pray, but Jesus, the Christians pray in Christ's name. The the bigger question is, why should God listen to our rambling and nonsense in the first place? What right do you have to not, not only approach the God of the universe, but ask him to do something for you? Ah, it's not for you. For Jesus. But God welcomes us kindly and listens to us because of Jesus. That's why we can be bold with him. We can lament with him. We can complain with him. We can even shout at him. He listens to our tantrums because we approach him in Christ's name. So let's take some time now and bow our head and approach him in Christ's name. You join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that you love us. You look down on us. You have pity on us as orphans, as, as people who are helpless in this world, who are crippled in our soul and our minds, who rebelled against you, and yet you still love us. And you call us into your home and you make us into your sons and daughters, not for us, but because of Jesus, that he died for us, that he gave us his righteousness so that we can come to you in faith and with boldness to ask you to save us, to help us, to embrace us. We can come to you with our requests. Father, we pray that you would continue to hold us into your hand, 
Do not let us fall away. Do not let us rebel against you again. Behold us for the sake of Jesus. And give us that assurance that we are loved every day in our lives. We pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.